This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. If you're listening on KXCV or the Bearcat Public Media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. On Real Fiction, I speak with authors, journalists, and change makers. I'm looking for overlooked stories. And all Real Fiction guests have something in common. They are grappling with issues, with ethical gray areas, and no easy solutions. All Real Fiction episodes are available on KXCV's public media app and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes on realfictionradio.com. I have guest profiles and more information about each episode. I'll be back in a moment with today's guest. My guest today is David Baldacci. He is the author of 47 national and international best-selling novels, and several have been adapted for film and television. He has also published seven novels for young readers. What you may not know is that the Baldacci family established the Wish You Well Foundation, which supports family and adult literacy programs in the United States. This foundation has assisted hundreds of organizations in this effort. David Baldacci is one of the great plot artists working today. His latest novel is Simply Lies, and I don't think fans will be disappointed by this one. David Baldacci, welcome to Real Fiction. Great. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, the challenge is always to talk about a novel that's a thriller without spoiling the plot, but I think think we'll find a way. And I I think listeners also want to hear from you a bit on craft, legacy, and and just how the heck you do it all. Um, and I think the first question really is, is it still a thrill to get the box of books from your publisher at this point after so many big novels? It is. I mean, I I spent years on the other side of the glass looking in, wondering if I ever was going to get a break, if anybody would ever read any of my stuff other than my close personal friends or family. Um, so I never have taken this for granted. I always have considered it unlucky, I'm privileged. So every every time a new book comes out, it's like my first novel, you know, being birthed all over again. I when I was preparing for my conversation with you, I read in, in, in an interview that you did uh, a while back, and you said that research is really important to you. There's when you get to a point um, in a career like yours, you know, one might wonder, okay, was there just a template? Is there just something that's that's so uh, uniform and easy, but you've made it clear that research for every book is important to you. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's sort of the foundation of what I do, and it allows me, one, to write my characters in a more authentic way, knowing what they actually do for a living, having met some of them. Um, the settings, I, I like to go to all the places that I write about, and it allows me, without a buffer in between, without someone telling me their interpretation of it, I can get a feel for it, a sense for it. I can walk around, I can talk to people, any Thing I see could inspire me. You never know. So I always like to do that uh, by myself. Uh, same when I was a lawyer, I always wanted to you know, do the witness interviews myself because how people tell you something and their body language can be more authentic and truthful than they actually are being. Um, so that's I carry that over into writing novels. But the, the biggest thing with research is that uh, once you do it all and you spend all that time and effort doing it, you have to leave almost all of it out. Um, and you're not writing a textbook. Um, nobody wants to know you know, they're all different parts to a gun. Nobody wants to know how a nuclear bomb actually goes off. So you have to get such a deep understanding of the research that allows you to take something that could be 150 pages long 
and condense it down to maybe a paragraph here, a sentence, a line of dialogue there, and that's it. And you just have to really be hard on yourself. I know it's tempting to put it all in. You're just going to have a flip book. And the flip book is when the readers hit all that crap you put in and they just flip right past it and get on with the story. I think that's an important point. Uh, so when you're doing your drafting, is that something that is now kind of just inherent in your process or do your editors and agents kind of advise where it may be good to pare down a bit? Oh, absolutely. I think both. I think I, I do a lot of it on my own and I count on my editor, you know, doing the same thing, you know, having more eyes on it. I'm not perfect by any means and having more eyes on it and different points of view, they could see something I missed. They could have a different perspective. And so I always, you know, I, I tell people, you don't have to agree with your editorial comments all the time. You need to respect the people who give them because they're trying to do the same thing that you're doing is make the, the story in the book as absolutely good as it possibly can be. Yeah, I think one of the writing uh, techniques that often comes up is if, well, if I had more time, I would make something read faster. I would have fewer words and make it read faster. And your books really are page turners. So that is... Uh, evidence of the fact that you have, this is not a one or two draft um, book at this point. None of your books are. They go through drafts and drafts and editing. Yeah, because I, I write big early on and I know that I write, you know, I'm too verbose. I've always felt, you know, my earlier books could have used, you know, I could have sliced and diced them more. These days I try to be lean and mean. Um, I try to give the reader, you know, exactly what they need to follow the story and be fair with them if they're trying to figure it out before the end. Um, yeah. I try to, I just try to be lean on all the things that, you know, when I, when I read a book, sometimes I skip stuff because yeah, it's nice writing. Um, I, and that's fine. And I, I enjoy that, but when it's page after page and it's not advancing the story and I sort of feel like I'm in neutral when I want the pace to be quicker, um, that I just sort of hurry past those and get back to the story, which is the most important thing for me, at least in reading a novel. And so when I'm writing, I have that same template in my head. I'm like, okay, if I were the reader would this matter to me? Would I need this um, in there to enjoy the story? Or am I just, am I, am I writing just for writing's sake? Because it makes me feel better to, you know, turn out, you know, some nice sentences that make me feel good about my ability. And that's fine. I'm not saying don't do that. Every book should have things like that because the words are very important. I'm just saying don't write fluff because it makes you feel better. Uh, I've always thought that every word needs to earn its right to be in the novel. And if it doesn't give the, the reader information they need to follow the plot, if it doesn't advance the story, if it doesn't carve out and flesh out a character arc, then why is it in there? You have to just ask yourself yeah. that. In the novel Simply Lies, which is your new novel that will be released in April, we have uh, two um, female leading characters and a murder investigation. Uh, we even get some cryptocurrency and some of the current financial yes. um, issues that are happening in our world today that are so confusing. Um, what what inspired this story? A few years ago, my wife had me listen to a podcast. It was, it was Chameleon about this uh, con artist who was tricking film workers, people, you know, hair and makeup, location scouts and all that to come to Indonesia. And he would scam a lot of money, money off of them each time. And I guess he did it so often that the money really added up. But it seems like the person was just doing it because they liked conning people. And nobody knew if he was a man or a woman. Uh, nobody knew where he was from. And there was a woman involved in the investigation who did online tracking. She did all of her stuff online. She would track down assets and identities and things like that. And I listened to the podcast. I thought it's really cool. I like that, you know, sort of dynamic. And then I thought about, well, you know, online, 
dominates our life now. Social media dominates our life, but it's all based on anonymity. You can be anybody you want to be. And it's almost like, you know, the id and the super ego, it's been unleashed. So I thought, let me, let me dive into this identity, this sense of identity who, you know, there's one character in the novel, she can be anybody she wants. And she's sort of like happy about that. But why is that? You know, are you building a wall so nobody will ever try to find out who you really are and maybe hurt you personally? Um, is that something that's going through the psyche of the world right now with online stuff? So all of that really, you know, bolstered my inspiration for crafting a story built in the world that so many of us spend so many hours of our day in. Yes. Mickey Gibson is a um, an online sleuthing expert. She's a, um, she's a detective. She's a lead character in the book. How did you... When you're crafting a character like Mickey Gibson, what what process do you go to through trying to understand a character's motivations and how they're going to behave? Yeah, motivation is really important because I've always felt if I'm asking a character to do something extraordinary, the motivation has to equal the action. Um, and if it doesn't, then all of a sudden the readers have a sense of, ah, really? Would they do that just because of X? Um, when really, if I were going to do it, it would take X, Y, and Z for me to do that. So I really have to balance the motivation with the action I'm asking them to do. And with with Gibson, you know, obviously I'm I'm not a female, but I I've grown up with strong, independent role models and females my whole life. You know, I uh, my family, my mom was one of ten, my dad was one of ten. I grew up with you know so many aunts, I, I lost count, and. Um, and my sister, my mom is a force of nature. Um, my wife is quite an independent woman. Um, so I sort of tried to channel all of those life experiences into crafting Gibson's character and also the fact that she was a mom and a single mom and working at the same time as many women do in this country and around the world. So those things always, you know, work into my, you know, my formula about how am I going to build this character? Because they need to feel authentic to the reader. If they don't, then I really lost them from page one. You know, one of the things that comes up in literary conversations, it, and it has in the past few years, is uh, what entitlement does an author have in, in writing from a point of view that they cannot identify with? Typically, this mean typically this is referring to a community, like you can't write in a from a culture that um, you're not part of, and gender sometimes comes into that conversation. Where do you fall in? And an author tapping into the creative process, writing a novel, writing a story, what 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 role or relevance does that have when you're creating? Um, I don't really, I mean, I don't look at it that way. I, I feel like a writer should be able to write about anything she or he wants to write about. Um, if they're interested in it, if they feel like they have a good story to tell um, that other people can relate to. Uh, if, if if we you know broke it along those lines, some of the greatest books we've ever had in our lives would never have been written. Uh, men have written great books that have female characters, and women have done the same with men. One race has written terrific no novels about uh, other races, and vice versa. Um, so I I don't want to you know I don't want to limit anybody's creativity and where they want to go. Um, and I, I don't think you know cultural appropriation. For, for me, all I want to do is try to tell a story. And if I can only write about men who are white, I mean. Uh, that severely limits what I'm able to do. And the same with a woman who wants to write about men, a black person who wants to write about a white, white people and, and vice versa. Um, then all of a sudden it's, it's almost like, well, let's just let the, you know, the artificial intelligence write that story. They'd be right in a real house. <laughs> you know, they could probably do a really good job uh, with that and just keep writing this narrow lane. But 
books are supposed to be, you know, break outside of norms, break out outside of the lane. It's supposed to make people uncomfortable. I, I, I can't tell you how furious I am about, you know, all these laws being across the country where kids should not read books and make them uncomfortable. Books are supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's the reason they're, they're written. Um, and books can change things, not by being vanilla, but by being many different colors. So I would say to any writer, if you want to write about something, write about it. It includes lots of people who don't look like you or you know, act like you or think like you. Who cares? Write. That is something that I really enjoy talking to guests about, um, how it relates to the creative process and what you're tapping into. But in your answer there, you anticipated something I really want to ask you about. Not long ago, I was sitting in the lobby um, on a university campus, and I heard someone say something to this effect. Well, I used to read science fiction novels. I like the plotting, but I suppose I could just go into chat GPT and just create my own plot. And I, I yeah. thought, and it, you know, what bothered me was the casual tone of that statement. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have David Baldacci on the program <laughs> in a couple of days. You are one of the great plot artists of our time. And, you know, the threat of, of a chat GPT and artificial intelligence really comes down to... Um, <laughs> Are we going to be able, as a, as a community, as a society, to write if we're allowing technology to, to just take over? Have you thought about what things like ChatGPT mean for writing, what it, what it might mean for instructors, educators to actually create a writing assignment, knowing that they can go home and get on something like ChatGPT and bang out an essay? Yeah, I, I've thought um, deeply about that. Um... My, you know, my daughter's in law school right now, and um, that's a lot of the talk on campus there as well. Here's, here's how I feel about it. Um, can artificial intelligence churn out novels and other stories and create films and television series that people probably enjoy? Yeah, they, they probably could. But I guess the, the biggest difference is that um, no matter how much code you put into it, no matter how much information goes into the database that they can draw upon, um, at least as far as I know at this point, AI databases and platforms have no emotions. They can't feel things. They've never been discriminated against. So they can write, I'm sure, you know, good plots and they can put characters in there. But I think most readers would look at it and just feel like, yeah, it's, you know, I can tell this story has come from a bunch of other stories that have already been written because that's what this source is drawing upon. There's no emotion there because the database can't have emotion. Right. Um, so I think that's a difference, but I look even beyond the stories and all that. I mean, we've seen this movies have been made about this, you know, books have been written about this television series. When you make the robots smarter than you are and stronger than you are at some point, uh, are they just going to say, you know what, we should be at the top of the heap, not these people who are far less than we are. So let's just take over. You know, I see these robots, you know, that weigh 200 pounds lifting a car and then you're going to put a brain in them that might allow them to want to take over and take control. That seems ridiculous to me. I think we need to have a pause on this and say, look, I understand there's lots of money to be made by this. But at the end of the day, if you know the robots take over the world, which sounds stupid, I understand. But not so stupid when you're looking at um, all of a sudden, you know, during the during the during COVID, so many companies have now turned to automation. So Amazon and their warehouses aren't hiring anybody to do the warehouses anymore because they have robots running around doing it far faster and cheaper. They don't get sick. They don't take vacation days. Um, so where are all these jobs going to go? How are people going to earn a living? 
if you have robots at McDonald's, you know, giving out the milkshakes and the hamburgers um, and doing and being the barista at Starbucks. So I think there are a lot of challenges, you know, not just not just a writing component, but how are human beings going to live in this sort of world uh, where others are doing all the work they could do? And it's not just physical labor. I mean, law firms are, are becoming automated and they're firing paralegals and attorneys left and right because an accountant's the same because the robots can do the, the information far faster and more accurately than people can. So I would say to all the entrepreneurs out there and all the business owners, yeah, it sounds like a really great way to make a lot of money. Um, but keep this in mind, if nobody has a job, how are they going to buy your stuff? Yes, very well, very well said. And uh, this is one of the great issues of our day. M many of the tech leaders have actually just in the past few days called for a pause on artificial intelligence so we can better understand the ethical limits of what needs to be put in place. And, you know, I think there's a growing body of neuroscience that speaks to the benefits of the creative process. And I was thinking as I was reading your book, how well and intricately plotted it is. Um, so let me get back to the, the book. Let, uh, remind listeners that my guest is uh, the great David Baldacci. We're speaking about his new novel, Simply Lies. What is a what makes a thriller? What makes a great thriller? Um, big big scenes where there's some action going on and people's lives are in jeopardy and there's a lot at stake. Um, and for me, the big scenes have always been relatively easy to write because the adrenaline is flowing. I've thought them through. And what I do with the big scenes is, particularly if it involves violence, um, is that I slow everything down. Um, because I've always felt like if you're going to injure someone or kill someone, on the pages, you have to show the respect that that sort of sacrifice mm. uh, deserves. There was a, I always give this example. In 1992, there was a Western that came out called Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. Um, and even though it was many, many, many years ago, I remember the scene vividly. And Eastwood had shot somebody, another, you know, Western guy at a distance, shot him in the belly. So the guy was going to die. He was just slowly bleeding out. And Eastwood held on that scene for, I don't know, seven or eight minutes in the film. They were just talking to each other, this guy slowly dying. Um, there was nothing to be done. And I remembered it because he could have just shot the guy and, and run off. You know, it could have been a Tom Cruise where he beats up nine guys and just and kills them all and just goes. And it takes like 11 seconds, right? And people forget about it. But I remember that scene because Eastwood slowed everything down. And I try to do that. I wanted people to see the pain. I want to see that it hurts. I want to see that even when you win a fight, you're also injured. You're scared. It's not nothing's perfect about it. It's often chaotic. Then that's the big scenes, the little scenes. Even in a thriller, maybe more importantly in a thriller, the human scenes have to be spot on because that allows me as a writer to connect on a visceral level with the reader. I can't do that with the action scenes. I can't do that with the plot alone. They have to feel for the for the characters, either root for them or against them. They have to feel their pain. They have to feel their anguish and sadness. Uh, and to do that, the small intimate scenes are very difficult to write. They are absolutely critical if you want this book to really resonate with the readers. I've never heard it described quite that way. Slow it down. Um, and as you were describing that, I'm remembering uh, a scene um, in the book, the lead character, there's a post-it note on her computer and it said, sweat the, I think it said, sweat the small details and the everything, the, the big effort will take care of, of itself. itself. Yeah. So that's really it, right? You're sweating the small stuff when you're writing every detail of the scenes. And then at the 
by the time you get to the end, it's sort of all there. It is. I mean, you you got to have some resolution. I'm not saying that every plot point needs to be neatly tied with a bow. I'm just saying that the major things, if you put into motion during the course of the novel, there has to be some resolution to them. Um, it doesn't have to be neat or pretty or clean because life is not like that. In fact, the more it mirrors real life, the better it will be and the more authentically it will resonate with the reader. Um, but yeah, the, the, the small details are the ones that I agonize over and, you know, do hmm. draft after yeah. draft after draft because that's, that's, that's the humanity in a novel. And the humanity is always difficult because it's an always moving target. And that's why I don't think, you know, I'm not saying I don't fear the AI stuff and what they can do. My son, actually, he was the first one that, when chat GPT came out, they came out and said, dad, come here. So he brought me over and he said, he typed in the thing, I press, write a plot. Uh, like a David Baldacci novel. It was like one, two, three, and there was like a page. And it, you know, I looked down and I said, yes, it, it did. It sounds a lot like a David Baldacci novel, but like a bunch of them that I've already written, you know, um, not anything that's going to come out of my head. And I think the one thing that maybe the AI. Oh, good point. Yeah. You know, they only have what's come in the past. Oftentimes, you know, all the time when I'm writing a novel, I have an epiphany, you know, where I have, you know, as, far, as fast as supercomputers are, and I'm not saying a human brain is any faster, I'm saying a human brain is more complex than any database or super string of supercomputers you could put together because we also factor in emotion. Um, epiphanies happen all the time when I'm writing, where I look at, you know, a million different details in my head and I'm juggling all these balls and all of a sudden two balls in the outer, you know, outer solar system, what I'm trying to build here, collide and hit and send the messages back to me. It only happens one time, uh, but it happened that mm. time. So that's the difference. Yeah, I think that's a really key point. And that just made me think of something uh, not related directly to that last question. But have you ever had a situation where you've seen someone uh, out in the wild reading one of your novels, just on a park bench or on the beach, wherever, and you kind of observe how they're responding to the book or maybe you maybe they don't know who you are in person and you've asked them what they thought of the book um have you ever had an a, just kind of a kind of a how do you say an incognito exchange with any of your readers to see how they're reacting to your novels i have yes i have i mean i've written so many books now and i travel so much it's very rare i can't remember the last time i was on a plane where i didn't see someone reading one of my books or on a train or i was at a hotel for an event in naples a few days ago and i got into an elevator with a dad and a little girl and dad had one of my books he's reading and he looked up and he was like, Oh, you know, and first his little girl said, I had in my suitcase. She goes, where are you going? And I said, Oh, I'm going home. And she goes, okay. And then the dad said, you know, I'm loving this book, Mr. Belnach. It's, it's, it's terrific. I mean, I'm really, you know, resonating everything. It's just clicking in this novel. And the little girl said, David Baldacci, who is that? And I said, that's me. <laughs> And she said, I've never heard of you. I don't know who this is, person is, dad. Who is this person? And uh, But I've also watched people from afar. Because I usually, my rule is, if I see you reading one of my books. I'm not going to come up to you because I don't want to have that exchange. I don't want to make you uncomfortable if you're not liking it. Or even if you are liking it, I don't want to invade your privacy. I've always felt like, okay, you know, sometimes it happens where they just keep reading. The whole time I'm watching, they keep turning the pages. Sometimes, you know, they read a couple of pages and they put the book down and they go do something else. And I'm like... Should I feel bad about that? Should I feel good about that? You know, maybe, maybe I should be happy they have one of my books and are reading it at all. You know, so there you go. 
Well, I I don't think I've ever been in an Airbnb or a hotel wherever they have a little library and I have not seen one of your books on the shelf. <laughs> so that so that made me think about okay, we've got we've got an author with 47 huge books floating in so many languages all over the world. There is a point at which you think about uh, legacy, and you already have thought about legacy. As I mentioned earlier, your family founded the uh, Wish You Well Foundation, and you help literacy programs around the country. And I can't think of a better time for supporting those programs. Hundreds of organizations have been helped by your foundation. Yeah, our mission at the Wish You Well Foundation is pretty simple. It's to eradicate illiteracy in the United States. And we have a huge illiteracy problem where about half the adult population read at the two lowest levels of literacy. That doesn't cut it, particularly in a democracy that makes people very susceptible to a lot of bad influences. the, The verbs to read and to think for me, are synonymous. You can't do one without the other. Um, so we live in an information society where we're flooded with information and disinformation every second of every day. If you don't have something to fight back against that, where you can process this information to determine what's true and what's not true, what is just made up to influence you in a negative way or not, then you're not going to be able to survive this, this onslaught. And what happens then? Well, you go to the voting booth and you make poor decisions, and then the country is led by people who don't have the best interests of America America in mind. So it's a whole, you know, it's a slippery slope kind of thing, and, but it starts with the ability to read and the ability to think. And we just have to turn that around. And democracy is not sustainable where half the adults, you know, don't read at, a, at a, uh, an adequate level. Uh, because they are totally susceptible to this onslaught of disinformation. And if you're not a student of history, I mean, I look around today and I see, you know, the shades of, you know, 1920s Germany everywhere in this country. Um, I see it in daily things that happen. I see it in laws that pass at local levels in different states. Uh, I see, you know, banning of books and burning of books. And, you know, uh, women can't uh, have choices about their own bodies. Now there may be border searches for women who are trying to go to other states to get you know, care for abortion. And all these things are happening. If you have no historical context in which to place these things, then you might just look at it and go, well, you know, it seems normal to me. And then when you get 87,000 tweets that reinforce that this is just normal, don't worry about it, then how in the world are you going to make good decisions going forward in the future for yourself, your family, and the country? For me, it all starts with the ability to read and the ability to think. Uh, Just a reminder that my guest today is David Baldacci. His latest novel is titled Simply Lies, due out in April of this year. If I can ask you a final question, do you have a new novel in the works? Is something obsessing you right now? (laughs) It is. um, A few years ago, well, more than 10 years ago, I started writing a couple of historical novels, one set in 1944 in London and one set in 1968 in Virginia, which is my first real purely courtroom drama. I grew up in Richmond in the 60s and 70s in a heavily racist, segregated society. I passed by those monuments every day when I went to college. Um, and so I started writing this book about 10 or 11 years ago, and then I set it aside because I didn't think it was relevant anymore. And then over the last five or six years, I went back and read parts of it, and I and I realized that if I didn't tell you it was 1968, you would think it was a contemporary novel. Um, mm. So I went back and finished it. It'll be out in April of next year. Um, and the London book will be out in 2025. But for me, the, the, the 1968 book is very autobiographical in many ways. It's how I grew up. Obviously, the characters in there are older. It's a courtroom drama. But this is an area um, in a time period that I knew very well and experienced it at 
you know, when I was becoming of an age where I was observing and remembering everything and experiencing everything. So that was very important to me. But the book I'm working on right now, it's a sequel to The 620 Man. It's a book I wrote that came out last summer. Yep. Um, so the Travis Divine is, you know, off on another adventure and I'm really, I'm having a lot of fun with it, but which I, I tell writers, I know what we do can be frustrating and exasperating and some days are good and some days are not so good. But if you really want to write great stuff, um, just to keep imagining you're an eight year old kid, uh, just letting your imagination go crazy and you're telling a fun story and guess what? Have fun while you're doing it. Your prose will be better. Your plots will be better and your characters will be terrific. This has been um, really an education and uh, an honor to have you on the program. David Baldacci, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. Thank you, Lori. I enjoyed it very much. I always like talking about writing. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. 